Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about autism stories. There are lots of conferences about autism out there, particularly here in the United States. However, rarely is a conference focused on the experiences of autistic adults. That's why I was thrilled to give a presentation at one of those conferences in the past year. On this episode of Autism Stories, I talk with Scott Allen, who was one of the organizers of this very conference, the Integral Adult Autism Conference, about the experience of organizing and participating in the, in the conference. I also talk with Scott about his career as a counselor. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be here, ready to answer all kinds of interesting things. <laughs> well, let, let's start off with something uh, that I always find interesting, that uh, is, where does your story in the autistic community begin? Well, in terms of my diagnostic story, as, as so many of us have, I was diagnosed with Asperger syndrome, which is still officially my diagnosis. That's it gets grandfathered in if you don't get an update later on. But yeah, I was diagnosed when I was 15. Throughout my childhood, my parents had always recognized something was different about me compared to you know, most other kids. I knew that I had difficulty with being teased, harassed, bullied in all kinds of ways throughout my childhood, among other kinds of differences. And eventually, my parents wanted to get some additional understanding of me and support for me. So I, they had me see a clinical psychologist for three years from the ages of 12 to 14. And I liked that psychologist, but I was misdiagnosed with clinical depression and OCD. But it was after I had concluded seeing that therapist that she spoke with my mother about the possibility of, you know, autism, Asperger's kind of stuff. And it said that she had held off originally because parents freak out when they hear those words. And that's still true in many cases. And it certainly was true at that time also. From there, my mother began doing more research, looking into what this might entail and to, to understand it for herself before breaking that to me and asking me, what if there were something that would explain a lot of the ways that you are? something to that effect. And by that age, I was enough of an empiricist to be able to say, I'm, I, I want to follow wherever the evidence leads. That if there's enough evidence to say that this is a likely explanation, then I'm at least going to consider it. And from there, kind of, you know, I, I had a sense that I'm still me. This is a new explanation for things that links things about myself in a different way, but this doesn't fundamentally change my life experience or who I am or what I value or anything like that. And eventually, Again, my parents found a, a research, like a scientific study, 
being conducted through the University of Pittsburgh at that time, which was 2001, summer of 2001, I think. Or was that 2000? Either way. But the study was about the heredity of what was then you know, considered Asperger's syndrome, and they needed subjects. And as part of going through that, they would offer a diagnostic process. And so I was diagnosed through that study. So I actually, rather than just going through a conventional diagnosis, I went through like a full battery of scientific tests up to and including a brain scan. So we know for a fact that my brain is wired differently for most people. The statistical norm, you know, and, and then from there, you know, began reading up more about the nature of the diagnosis and getting involved in the local chapter of the Autism Society and other kinds of connections that led to, you know, increasing my understanding and my, uh, my advocacy about these things. Now, you earned a master's in counseling and currently work with autistic clients, but also non-autistic clients. Do you feel like your approach differs much when working with people that have a different neurology than yours? I would say not a whole lot. Like there are definitely different considerations to be made and a different set of information to keep in mind with different clients, but that's true of, of any specific things that a client might bring to you. A client coming to you with general anxiety is not going to be the same set of information to keep in mind necessarily as somebody who is primarily focused on you know, trauma or some other specific issue. So in terms of the approaches that I use as a counselor, the general premises that I use are basically the same for all of my clients. And, you know, I tailor them and customize them to the individual needs of, of clients as best I can. But I'm coming from five major models that I draw from. I don't follow any one model, like, really, like, devoutly. But there are several that I think are relevant. One of the big ones is rational emotive behavior therapy, which is all about, like, how might your thinking be distorted? And if your thinking is distorted, that's going to have an impact on your emotions relationships and things like that. And for people on the autism spectrum or not on the autism spectrum, they can have all kinds of things that they pick up from family or society that are not really that realistic or that when you start to examine them, challenge them, you find there are other explanations, other ways to interpret those things. So that one is particularly important to me. I often describe that as how you feel about what you think and what you think about how you feel. That there's a relationship between those things. I also draw on narrative therapy kind of to, to say like you get to understand and define your own you know history and how you describe yourself and your identity and these kinds of issues you don't have to medicalize your understanding of yourself if you're on the autism spectrum or think of yourself as just a bad person regardless of, of what your diagnosis might be you don't have to think that way and then i also use uh, a lot of just psychoeducational kind of stuff like to just describe in detail what happens in a social situation? What are the, the cultural rules that we live under? What are other kinds of things that are going on to help understand the social circumstance in ways that you might not otherwise have? Solution-focused outlooks are, are important to me for a lot of clients that to say, like, you don't have to be passive. You don't even necessarily have to understand exactly what your problem is to be able to take some kind of action to change a pattern. And once you start changing the pattern, you might see, oh, just can do things different. You don't necessarily have to understand every factor that went into it. And then the other big one for me is, is existential therapy, which is not widely used anymore because it's not as definitive and measurable as insurance wants. But it's a really important one from my perspective because clients of all kinds, and especially, you know, this is very important for me for our autistic clients, strategies about like just building skills or, you know, talking about emotions are not wrong or bad, but they're not sufficient by themselves. 
And this is what I've seen in a lot of other situations that a client on the autism spectrum will be wondering, am I a legitimate person? Do I have a place in society? What is my life going to be like? How do I make these kinds of decisions about you know values and who I want to be and all these kinds of things? And a lot of other models just don't touch on those things. They don't have a credible way of helping the person think about ways to answer those questions for themselves. So all of these things, I think they're useful just across the board as, as human approaches to be rational, to be understanding your context, to be able to take action on your own problems, ownership of your own problems, and to address your responsibility for your values and your course in life, and then to have the information to back those things up. That applies to anybody. And that's why I think it works across you know most of my clients. Now, in talking with so many autistic adults over the years, they've told me about not very successful um, experiences with therapists, because a lot of times therapists might not understand their needs. Do you have suggestions for adults out there when looking for a therapist that would be helpful to them? Yeah, some, some general thoughts. First, I want to say, I, I also hear quite a bit of that from my clients. They've come from other therapists and they're saying, these other therapists had all the other kinds of issues. I do hear some positive things about other therapists, though, too. So I don't want to be you know, completely coloring that negatively. But generally, the therapists are not so effective. That what I hear from my clients is that the clients, they don't feel like they were really listened to. They feel like the, those therapists only wanted to talk about emotions or only wanted to use one model to try to think of all of the, their, their issues that they're going through. And I think more than anything else, the clients say, I want to understand in detail, in depth, what is going on socially? What are the social rules? What are the motives of other people? How do I understand the perspectives and psychology of others and the strategies to be able to do things differently socially? And then other therapists either don't want to talk about that or don't feel they're able to. And that's something that I specialize in. I had to learn those things myself through conscious observation to make my own way in life. And then I can bring that to my clients to say, okay, here's how I would assess this kind of situation. And you can take that as a set of ideas to then have your own form of, of assessing these situations. In terms of looking for a counselor or other therapist who might be effective, research has shown just in a general way that 70% of the effectiveness of a counseling relationship is based on the connection, the rapport between the client and the therapist. That it's their ability to you know, be with each other, to have some kind of understanding or emotional bond that drives most of the success of that relationship. And the other 30% is specific models and techniques and so forth. So that's, that's still pretty significant, but it's not the majority. So, and I also know that just getting to the point of deciding that you want to look for help from a counselor, that that can already have taken a lot of thought and effort and anxiety and self-doubt about, you know, getting yourself to finally make that connection and then go through all the, the hoops to be able to make that happen. So I know that just picking up a different counselor because you didn't like your first one, that might be a big loss of time and energy on your part, that you might have made an investment to get that far. But I do want to say that if you don't feel like there's a connection or that it's working with one counselor, don't feel obligated. There are some people who have gone years or even decades stuck with one or more therapists who they didn't like because they felt obligated to just do whatever you know they thought the expectations were. But in fact, being able to have some respect for that other person and feel, to feel understood by them is really important from a clinical perspective, therapeutically. 
So I often tell clients that if you don't like one counselor, find another one. It should be like looking for breakfast cereal. That if you don't like one, just find some other one that, that suits you better. And be looking for people who are you know, relatively calm, kind, and willing to work with you. They don't necessarily have to be autism experts. If they're at least willing to genuinely listen to you, to take you seriously, and to do some additional work on their own part, to maybe shore up some of their own knowledge, to look at some additional resources. I know it can be rough to have to like educate your counselor about what you're experiencing, but sometimes that might be a useful thing to be able to do. But overall, as long as it's somebody who really genuinely seems interested in understanding you and working with you, that's the most important thing that I would say. And then kind of feel it out from there. Connection and trust is, is so vital. You know, with, with Autism Personal Coach, you know, we provide coaching. And I'm always talking with our coaches and with our clients. If you can't develop that trust and a connection with your coach, it's just not going to work. I don't care how much education that the coach has. I don't care how much experience the coach has. It's just not going to work. So I'm always fascinate, fascinated by trust and a connection and developing connection. How do you go about doing that with your clients? Yeah. So in my case, a couple things. I try to be pretty casual. Like I do not have much of a professional facade. Now, part of that is because that's my personality. Another part is because especially for, you know, most of my clients are, are on the autism spectrum at this point. And that professional facade, that is hiding the social signals that they need to be able to kind of track what you're thinking and feeling. Like they're already struggling with that. So to add this facade on top of the other ways that they might be, you know, struggling to track social information is just even more confusing. So I make sure that, that I do that as little as possible. And then if there is a source of potential confusion, I'm, I'm right on it. I'm like, and I mean this, or here's where I'm coming from, or if you were thinking this, or, you know, because people have common misperceptions, so I'm kind of ready to address those. So that's part of it. I try to be very, you know, down to earth, plain spoken. I'm kind of naturally inclined to be verbose or to, to use, use a larger vocabulary. But I want to make sure that you know, without being condescending or dumbing it down, to just be real with people and to, to share something of myself and my reasoning and be pretty open with them about here's how I'm thinking, here's where I'm coming from on this issue, rather than keeping the counseling process mysterious. You know, that, and I'm not showing them all of my cards all the time. I'm having my own you know, thoughts and analyses of, of what they, they might be going through. But then I'm checking in with them. I'm making sure that I am really trying to understand, hey, what are you going through? I will often say things like, my impression is, or does this seem true to you, or you know, one possibility is, rather than saying, you're experiencing this, or you're, you definitely have this, or things like that. I'm not using that absolute approach, because I don't know what's going on in their lives. They're the ones reporting it to me. I need to be able to check in with them. And I think that helps my clients feel heard. And I think most counselors do that, but I, I certainly have heard you know, stories about some who apparently did not, at least with some of the clients that, that have come to me afterwards. And really having some humility about my own clinical knowledge. I hear stories about clients, you know, going to therapists for autism and some of those therapists are operating with outdated information or with incomplete information. And then taking that as more true than what the client is saying. And when the label is taken as more real or reliable, than the actual person's experiences that they're sharing with you, they're not going to feel hurt. They're going to feel like you're just shoving them into a box and assuming that your understanding has to be more complete or more accurate than what they're going through. 
And that's not to say that they're always going to have good insights into what they're experiencing as a client. People can be mistaken about their own perceptions in any direction. But so to me, that's really important to know that like, okay, I've got a lot of legitimate knowledge, lenses, ways of thinking about these issues. And I also have my own limits. There are things I don't know. There are things that I could be mistaken on. New discoveries could be made that change the interpretation, all these kinds of things. So I'm always open to the possibility that I might be missing something or misinterpreting something. And I'm going to be checking in with the client collaboratively to figure out what seems to make sense for now in this situation. What is our best available way to explain things or to otherwise address an issue? It may be, because as I was saying before, understanding the explanation is not always necessary. Beyond your, your work as a therapist, you've been a board member and education co-chair for the Autism Society of South Central Wisconsin since 2018. What's been your experience as an openly autistic board member? Very positive, I would say. I, I do need to mention, although I am, I think, still technically a co-chair of the Education Committee, my role has shifted much more towards like running the conference and the facilitation of our adult support groups. So uh, I haven't done as much direct educational stuff recently, just as an FYI. But overall, my experience, yeah, has been very good. And I'm really glad to be part of this board doing what we do. Our board, my perception is that it was a relatively progressive board in a lot of ways to begin with, and certainly has been very receptive to the kinds of messages and perspectives that I've been bringing to it. Since I've joined, we have also brought on one additional uh, autistic board member. So we, we now have two out of, what is our current number, eight, nine board members, something like that. That's, I would say, fairly good representation for a group of this size and nature. Yeah, I've always felt respected. I've always felt that people take my input seriously. And that input is not just taken seriously, but value. That it is something that my fellow board members generally want to be able to act on. And I, I feel like an equal participant. If I have an idea that is not a good idea, they, they can disagree freely. They don't have to feel like they have to walk on eggshells or anything like that to you know, appease me or anything like that, as I've you know, occasionally seen in other situations with various other people. So that really helps me feel that I am being treated truly equally, that I'm neither being disregarded nor over-regarded, and that I really have a place within that organizational structure. And just as, as fellow people, all of my board members are very down-to-earth, practical people with all kinds of different backgrounds and, and skill sets. And it's great to, to work with them in, in an organization that is, is shifting more and more from a primarily family-oriented mode to be more inclusive of adults on the autism spectrum and to be kind of on the, the ground floor or the leading edge of doing that in an organization of, of this type is, is rewarding. And have you needed, um, as, since being a board member, any types of uh, accommodations? And if so, how'd you go about doing, going about that? I personally have not. Throughout most of my life, I've actually had very few accommodations and usually have not perceived myself as, as needing much. So in that sense, that's consistent with the rest of my life experience. If there are occasional issues with, you know, I'm sometimes slow to respond to email because of executive functioning issues or, or other kinds of things like that. I've, I have felt that I've been given a reasonable amount of leeway while still being held accountable when necessary for like, you need to be able to get out this kind of stuff if it's too far behind or things like that. So to the extent that like, I guess more of these informal kinds of accommodations have been appropriate. I have felt like just talking with, with them and being able to figure out where do we go from here has been sufficient and more than enough. Now, I was introduced to you initially because the Autism Society of South Central Wisconsin has a great conference called the Integral Conference that you're a big part of making happen. 
um, I got to present at the conference this past year. And it was a, a really unique conference format, I, I felt. So for our listeners that may not be familiar with the Integral Conference, can you talk a little bit about it and what made the format so unique? Yeah. Well, I'll give a quick rundown of sort of the, the history and vision of, of the conference. I am one of the two co-founders of the conference, which is the first adult autism conference in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, the first, you know, exclusively around that population or that set of issues. So I'm, I'm proud to be able to say that. I am also, we've been doing this since 2019. That was our, our first conference when we were in, in person. And we've been virtual since then because of the pandemic. But for 2020 and 2021, I have been the, the team leader, essentially, for coordinating the conference and making sure that our great and diverse team of, uh, not a very large team, but we've done some, some really great things with the people that have volunteered their time and skill sets to the conference. The overall tone or purpose of the conference is to bring together autistic adults and non-autistic parents and professionals to get them in the same space interacting and talking about their perspectives on these issues. We're still working on making that more effective and more fluid. But to me, you know, I recognized in 2018-2019 that there's just this wall between most of the professional organizations and like research and support services and the adult autism community. It's not that there aren't connections. Of course, there are connections between these groups. But over and over, I was seeing that it that like things that, that are common knowledge within the adult autism community are like still not being recognized within many of these other sources that many of these other you know, organizations or demographics are sometimes 10, 15, even 20 years behind the narratives within the adult autism community. And I began to wonder, like, not so much, how do I solve that problem, but more about what is it that is preventing this communication from happening? What is it that seems to be you know, a barrier? And my thought was, even if I don't know exactly why that is, and there's various historical reasons for why I think that's the case, but the solution, I think, at least in part, is to get these groups together and actually be talking with each other in a relatively open, somewhat you know, free-flowing, honest kind of way. And we structure it in the conference around specific subjects, but we want there to be like open-ended conversations. And so th this year, uh, we've, we've tried a few different models. Each year has looked at different so far because we've been trying to address things in different ways. And 2020, we had a different format because we were all about the pandemic response and bringing in a very large number of experts. So that looked different for that reason. But this year, uh, a keynote speaker and then three main presenters, yourself included, of course. And we began with, in each case, a presentation and then followed that up with a round table. So in each case, we wanted the, and we did have the round table be kind of like, there wasn't a leader, like I was the facilitator, but then the presenter from the preceding presentation was there to be a participant within the round table conversation. And this whole model is about like, let's start with, sure, we can have presentations that are about setting the, the tone, establishing facts, bringing up, you know, new information people might not have been exposed to. And let's then not leave it there. Let's not only have this top down, you're going to receive information from somebody kind of approach. And that's not wrong, but I think it can be expanded on to be able to say, let's go in the other direction. Let's have the non-autistic parents, professionals, you know, experts of various kinds, listen to the people who are actually living 
the autistic adult experience who are experts on their own boots on the ground. This is really what's happening in society kind of way. And that's what we want to keep encouraging and have more of within the conference so that all of these groups and perspectives can mingle and, and share, you know, different thoughts. And, and here's what I see as happening. And here's, you know, a, a way that, that maybe you think is, is a potential, could be a potential solution to a, a problem. Just have these conversations and share these kinds of experiences and information that otherwise these, these channels don't seem to be very open, that we're not getting this kind of information between these groups as, as effectively as it could be. And then you end up with, in many cases, non-autistic parents and professionals who are out of the loop on what's happening in our you know, adult autism spectrum lives. And that's just, it's an avoidable problem. It's avoidable. That to me is, is the driving thing, that there's this irony that if we just sat down and communicated more, we could probably figure a lot of this out relatively easily to at least establish more of what's going on, if not you know, specific solutions. So that's what the conference is, is all about, is to get these perspectives together while also providing useful information that can be supportive to the conference goers. Now, um, in my late 20s, I had the opportunity to organize a conference for a nonprofit that I was working with. And what I learned from that was there's a heck of a lot of executive functioning things you need to do to put out a conference. So I'm really curious, uh, what was, what's been your experience about the executive functioning stuff, challenges to putting on a conference, and how do you go about managing those? I think to start with, that first year, the other co-founder of the conference is uh, a wonderful colleague of mine, Dr. Megan Farley. She works with autistic adults as, as well as a number of other things in, in her career. But she had, had kind of come to me and said that she had the idea of like doing an adult autism conference. And for me, like I had never occurred to me. Just the idea of like, you can just do a conference. Like I would have never thought to initiate that. Once that got off the ground, like she told me straight up, like she didn't have necessarily a lot of specific ideas about what that conference could or should be. Uh, and was leaving it kind of deliberately open-ended. And then I stepped in to say, like, okay, as an adult on the autism spectrum, here are my thoughts personally and professionally about what we could do with this kind of format. And then I leaned heavily on her as well as our other team members that first year. We had four or five people involved and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I had never done a conference before. So this was all seat of my pants kind of stuff that revolved around having meetings, talking about just logistically what would physically have to happen for this to go forward. And then, you know, assigning tasks based on, you know, different skill sets and things like that. And that experience of being with like her as, as the co-leader, well, I think was really beneficial for me because she didn't feel like she knew exactly what she was doing either. But between the two of us, we were able to support each other on figuring out how to move forward on various things. And that gave me a model or a template for what things needed to look like for a conference to be able to function and move forward and, and carry it out. So in the subsequent two years, like, yes, there's still definitely other executive functioning thing, and I'll touch on that in a moment, but just having had a template of, okay, even if we don't do it exactly this way, just knowing that certain kinds of functions need to happen and then inserting like, okay, what specific tasks would serve this function this year? Those kinds of things that have been really helpful for me to have a, an organizational framework to be able to operate from and feel you know, less stressed about. Because if you really don't know what you're doing, then trying to put energy into tasks isn't going to feel rational or efficient or anything like that. In terms of you know leading the conference, I continue to draw heavily on the input of team members. 
I've been told by some of them that I, I have a good balance between sometimes just making an executive decision and saying like, mm, this is what I think we need to do and other times, which I do regularly, soliciting their input, say, you know, what do you think? What are perspectives on this? And then being able to compare and contrast ideas and figure out more or less as a group, pretty collaboratively, what seems like it would be the most effective or rational or, or interesting way to, to approach a particular kind of situation. Having regularly scheduled meeting times is something that is we've always done and I think is part of that formula that you know we know exactly like we've been meeting every other Saturday for these kinds of things. And you know, with some occasional, you know, if we need to be flexible, we can meet on a, a different day if we have to. But but having that predictability built into my schedule is definitely part of it. And I will admit one of my big failings within this is that especially if I'm kind of stressed or, or loaded with a lot of things overall, whether through, you know, any combination of volunteer and, and just like job obligations or other things going on in my life. I have lifelong sleep issues. I, I believe I qualify for delayed sleep phase disorder. So a lot of my stress is sleep related. During those kinds of moments when I'm, I'm struggling with these kinds of issues and, and keeping up with all my obligations, I'm a lot slower on following up with email communications or initiating email communications with, for example, you know, the speakers that we, we want to bring into the presenters, I should say, for the conference. And both 2020 and 2021, there were significant bottlenecks where I was about a month behind on things that like under other circumstances, I probably would have been able to easily do in a few minutes. I just had you know, psychological blockages that made it more difficult to do that kind of thing. And we've been moving towards within the conference as we have more people involved as volunteers to be able to do more and more delegating so that I'm not step getting in the way, so that I'm not stepping on my own feet on those kinds of things and that I don't have to be like the point person for everything. So there's been a mix. There's been a range of things where sometimes having the structure, sometimes having the support of others, sometimes you know it has not necessarily you know, worked in the way that I would have hoped or intended. But we were able to get through it and make it work because I kept pushing through it because of the combination of everybody's sense of motivation and, and responsibility within the group and then you know, supporting each other through those kinds of things. So that's, I think, about all I could say on the specific executive functioning stuff without just detailing all of my you know, executive functioning challenges in a more general sense. Now, you were mentioning the roundtables that happened at the Integral Conference, which would happen after a presentation. And, you know, after my presentation, the roundtable where a lot of autistic adults were talking about their executive functioning challenges and some strategies that have helped them in the process. To me, there felt like a real sense of community during that roundtable, which I, I really loved. So I'm wondering, because conferences are usually a place for education, where people come together to be, to be educated. What do you see um, as a conference's role in developing community for the participants that attend? Yeah, I think this is an often overlooked thing amongst just, if you're just thinking in terms of conference planning or the function of a conference for professional purposes, I think it's easy to miss the fact that as reported by many autistic adults themselves, like I have heard repeatedly from adults on the spectrum that for a lot of them, they go to conferences primarily not to attend the presentations, but to go to the side rooms where they can then have conversations with other people like themselves. So it's simply the ability to be physically around other people like you, to know that you have a space that is suitable, it's set up for your needs, it is, is 
you consider of, of what you were bringing into that environment, for many of them, like presentations were, were secondary or not even a consideration that they would sometimes go to these conferences and attend none of the presentations just because they wanted to be around people as a, a form of community. And we, you know, because we've had to be virtual these past couple of years, we haven't been able to fulfill that function, but I've been keenly aware of that mentality and that desire to be just around others. And we definitely want to be able to offer that when we eventually go back to, to some kind of like hybrid model, hopefully. And I will also mention sort of a different angle on this, that like within our conference, a, a significant proportion of the participants come from the adult autism like support and social groups that we offer through our chapter of the Autism Society and that I'm the facilitator for. And we have a, a thriving community of, I would say, about 15 to 18 core members and then probably almost as many people who don't join us as regularly, but uh, who, who do have pretty frequent participation or, or at least regular participation. And so a lot of those folks have gotten to know each other and be comfortable with each other already. So when they're in the conference, they can then have conversations with each other or feel comfortable about the fact that people they know are there, that they have some kind of moral support, people who understand their issues present in other parts of the audience. And I think that's where a lot of, of the conversations like this past year started. It was a lot of those kinds of relationships that were the nucleus for those other discussions that we had. Well, I, I was observing, if I'm being honest, that not a lot of other parents and professionals participated, which, you know, I get. People are unsure of, of what their role might be. People are afraid of maybe being accused of being imposing or saying the wrong kind of thing. And there's a lot of the feeling of don't know where the boundaries are, or walking on eggshells. And I respect that, but I, I want to keep encouraging our participants to be a, a little bold and to continue to expand those community conversations so that it's not only the autistic adults who are comfortable having those conversations, but all of us interactively, everybody there can have some kind of a role or participation if that's what they want. I know some people are just you know, there to listen anyway, and that's okay too. But being able to have a space that is expressly for and about adults on the autism spectrum, not just as like, these are the people we're here to help, or these are the people we're here to study, but like, no, these are the people who we are here to see as people, to interact with as people. That to me is something that feels different. It's not that that can't exist in other conference spaces. I think it sometimes does, but to say, this is what we're here for is different. And I think that that, uh, for at least some of our participants, gives them the sense of like, we can be more of ourselves, share more of our experiences, and have a sense of, if not being a community, then at least maybe kind of establishing a community, beginning to build community ties, community bonds. And how can people learn more about the Autism Society of South Central Wisconsin and the Integral Adult Autism Conference? Well, I would say that most direct route is to go to our uh, websites, uh, autismsouthcentral.org uh, and uh, integralautism.org. And the integral conference one needs to be updated. I'm, I'm remembering that. I, I, we still have like our, our thank you for this this past conference up. I got to get that up soon with, with the help of our, our tech person. At any rate, yeah, uh, you'll be able to find information about um, like for our chapter, for, you know, our mission, our activities and events, uh, our, our separate subgroups that we offer for you know, uh, adults on the autism spectrum and for uh, parents of, of various descriptions. And through the conference, yeah, you can find our mission and vision and what we're about, some of the things I was describing previously. And if you want to send an email, you can use the contact form through our chapters websites to contact our administrative person, express interest in whatever you might be interested in for autism purposes through our chapter. 
And for Integral, we, we likewise have a field on our website, or you can send a message directly to, uh, it's integral at autismsouthcentral.org. And if you want to contact me directly as uh, a representative of our chapter, I also have a board member email through us, uh, through our chapter. It's just scott at autismsouthcentral.org. So uh, happy to field questions personally, as, as well as, you know, to encourage you to send questions to our general chapter or through our, our conference account. Well, Scott, I, I always enjoy our interactions. So, and this today was no different. So thanks so much for making time and uh, answering my questions. And likewise, glad to be here, glad to be able to uh, get more of the word out and keep making sure that people are aware that whatever the situation is, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. We might have other options. We might have other ways of doing things and thinking about moving forward, but we don't only have to stick with the existing systems, um, but there's always some way to innovate. So thank you again for, for uh, having me, and it's been great. Thanks so much to Scott for the conversation. To learn more about Scott and the Autism Society of South Central Wisconsin, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. It was great to hear Scott talk about a conference that supports and educates autistic adults and their allies about the autistic experience. With Autism Personal Coach helping to educate our client on what their autism means to them and how to apply it to their lives, that's really an important aspect of our coaching. If this sounds like something you want in your life, you can book a free call with me today to discuss making this a reality. A link to book this call can be found in the podcast description of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will discuss the impact of music and dance on the autistic experience. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.